Well, I'm glad you're here. We're starting a new series. Uh, Matt just finished up going through the book of Romans, which I was privileged to come in at the tail end of it, but I was glad I was here for it. And uh, Matt did a really good job. And we're going to continue going through another, well, not another book, another chapter, which will take us a little bit. We're going to go through the chapter, the longest chapter in your Bible, Psalm 119. You can turn there. Uh, Psalm 119 will actually keep us very busy for the rest of the year. Uh, it's made up of 22 stanzas of eight verses each, and so that'll keep us going till about December, which will lead us right into Advent, and we can do a couple of Christmas Sunday school lessons, and then we're going to do some different schedule changes and whatnot in the new year with some different classes and such. So it'll be a nice segue into that. So Psalm 119, though, we're starting this morning. I think it's a huge understatement, and I, uh, I'm aware of this, <laughs> it's a huge understatement to say that David's life was full of trials. We know that, we, we are familiar with that, that's why we have a lot of the Psalms. He was a man who lived a life of suffering, a life of adversity, a life of hardship. Uh, if you remember King David's life, he spent his early adult years uh, being hunted. He was on the run from his uh, from his friend's father, Saul, and he after he was anointed. I think that's always an interesting thing. David is anointed by Samuel, and then he is forced to go on the run. He is a fugitive king because Saul is jealous of him. He's jealous of someone that is uh, trying to take his throne somewhat. And then he, once he finally gets into his reign, his kingly reign is not one that has a lot of peace. It's filled with war. It's filled with bloodshed. It's filled with constant conquests of other nations. Such is why at the end of King David's life, we are uh, given that scene where he's, you know, he's requesting to build the temple, right? He, he's coming near the end of his life, and he, he's expressing this desire to God to build a temple to him, and God denies him that request. If you remember, he denies it because David's reign has been filled with bloodshed. It's been filled with much war, and that's one of the reasons why uh, God denies him that. So he's a fugitive king, and he's also a soldier king because he's just filled with uh, scandal. His, his, his reign was skilled with scandal and struggle and suffering and wars. This is King David, the man after God's own heart. He was also a man of war, a man of conflict. And I think in that way, that's where we get a lot of these Psalms. The book of Psalms, of course, it's not all David. It's not all King David writing them. Uh, it's, I think we have some from Moses and we have from, some from Asaph and others that are anonymous. However, David wrote the bulk of them. So in that way, King David's life kind of mirrors uh, a lot of the other great songwriters that we are familiar with. If you love you know, some of the oldies and such, uh, there's a lot of old pop songs that are perhaps maybe be upbeat, but they have really dark past. They have really rough backgrounds. The, the, the backgrounds of a lot of our favorite uh, singers and songwriters are filled with grief. They're filled with suffering. They're filled with hardship. But it's out of those hardships that some of the greatest songs were born. And I think that's something that we find here. That out of David's most intense life struggles, most intense hardships, he writes some of the most beautiful psalms. And it's because he's just pouring out his heart to God. And I think that's what makes these psalms so relatable. What's the first book you want to go to when you're struggling in life? It's often the psalms. 
for me, and I know it is, go to Psalm 46, or go to Psalm 23, or go to Psalm 18, or 118, or 121. Countless psalms that we can remember, that we are familiar with, that give us just immense encouragement in the midst of life's most intense suffering. And that's because David was going through it too. David was going through that suffering on his own, in his own way, in his own life. And I think uh, that's what makes these psalms, these songs, so relatable. They are heartfelt. They are honest. They are vulnerable. Um, that's what I think makes them words that we can relate to. They're, they relate our hearts' vulnerabilities, our hearts' uh, inadequacies or insufficiencies or insecurities. They're right here. They're right here in the psalms. And I also think as I've studied the Psalms, as I've uh, read them and, and, and reread them, there's one thing that stands out to me. And I think I want to point that out this morning. Uh, but the one thing that stands out to me is I don't think that these are words that David put into practice all the time, right? If you read the Psalms, he makes a lot of vows. He's making a lot of promises. He's making a lot of commitments to God. But there's not necessarily words that he always uh, put into practice. Actually, I think as he's writing them, it's almost as if he's writing to remind himself. He's writing them to say, here is something that I know about God, and I'm reminding myself of it because I know that my heart is weak and my heart is fickle and my heart is frail, and I'm going to forget this. So I have to write it down to remember. I don't know about you, but I have to write down everything uh, or I will forget. I have so many scraps of paper that are organized, but there are little notes here and there, and then my calendar is just completely filled with things, so I know to do them, or else I'll forget them. And I think David is similar in the sense that he is writing things down to remind his own heart of what is true, of what is constant. Actually, look at verse 18. I'll jump ahead. We're going to stay in the first eight verses, but look at 18, where David confesses, in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Or look at verse 24. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. He's reminding himself that God's word, the testimony of God's word is his delight. He's reminding himself of that. Or in verse 47, look at what he says there. And I will Delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. I will. He's committing himself to reminding himself of what God's word says. Of what God's word says is true. And he's convincing himself of that truth. That God's word is his only delight. His only resource. His only uh, recourse in this life. And that's what Psalm 119 is. Psalm 119 is 176 verses of David, King David, reminding himself of what he knows to be true already, which is God's word is abundantly sufficient for every single phase, every single season in life. That's what he's reminding himself of. He's seeking to rest in these words. He's seeking to find uh, the trustworthiness of God's word abundantly trustworthy. He's, he's trying to remind himself of that. I, 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 and I can, I can relate to that because how often do we forget the promises of God? How often do we go daily and forget what God's word says to us? What God's word promises to us? 
I'm a person who uh, I like to call myself a dweller because when something bad happens or when I think something bad is going to happen, I dwell on it and I think about the absolute worst outcome of whatever circumstance is ahead of me. Even though it's not true. It's not even happened yet. And I'm thinking about the worst thing that could happen and it's affecting me right now. (laughs) David was the same way. He often is expressing just so much stress about what's going to happen even though it hasn't already happened. (laughs) And that he's trying to remind himself that, no, God, you are the sovereign one. That's where we get that great verse in Psalm 46.10, where he just says to his soul, be still and know that you are God. I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell myself that. To be still and know that God is God and I'm not God. He has my life in order. He has my life under control. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the future. I can be still. I can be silent. I can be faithful right now. And I think that's what David is praying for. And that's really the theme of this psalm. The theme of Psalm 119 is just an enjoyment of scriptural assurance. That's what he's seeking. He's seeking that and he's reminding himself of that. Of the assurance That scripture gives him. The assurance that God's testimonies give him of where his true uh, hope, where his true happiness, where his true life is found. And it's found in scripture which points him to Jesus. So... We have this psalm, Psalm 119. It's a beautiful psalm, just taken, you know, removing sort of our spiritual eyes, just looking at it from a literature standpoint. It's a beautiful psalm. And it's written, our English is not as beautiful perhaps as the Hebrew, which was a much more poetic language. But each of these stanzas are, are um, they stand in for uh, the sequential letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That's where you get those little words at the beginning of each stanza, perhaps if your Bible includes that. In the Hebrew, each verse would have started with that letter. And it would be sort of a, uh, a lyrical psalm that went through the, all of the Hebrew alphabet that way. And in that way, it's a very beautiful psalm, but also it's a very important psalm. And in fact, the great reformer, the German reformer, Martin Luther, he once declared that he prized this psalm so highly that he would never even exchange the world for one page of it. He prized the psalm so dearly that he reminisces that phrase from Jesus that uh, he will eschew the world in exchange for one page of this psalm. Or the great hymn writer, William Cooper, He once referred to the psalm as a holy alphabet, so plain that children may understand it, but so rich and instructive that the wisest and most experienced may every day learn something from it. It's both. It's something where children can learn and learn of the majesty of God's word, but it also speaks to the wisest, most experienced, most seasoned saints among us, who have endured some of life's griefs and have found God's word to be such a security, such a sufficiency for them. So I pray as we go through this psalm that we will be similarly influenced and impacted in that way. That we will learn to prize it like Martin Luther or we will learn to cherish it above all others like Cooper. I pray that we will be made to do that. So we're going to look at, let's look at the first stanza now. Uh, Verses 1 through 8, I'm going to read them. David says, 
Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, and that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. So just in reading this stanza, uh, what's something that jumps out to you? What's, what's something that you immediately notice? Uh, and there's no wrong answers here. Just what, what's something that, reading these eight verses, what's something that stands out to you? Anything? One thing stands out to me and reminds me of Jesus. Reminds you of Jesus? That's good. We're going to get to Jesus, which is a good thing. <laughs> Anything else? His commandments. Yeah. What I notice is all the different words for God's law, right? Or God's word. He says in verse 1, he says, walk in the law. In verse 2, it says, keep his testimonies. In verse 3, he says, walk in his ways. Verse 4, keep thy precepts. Verse 5, keep thy statutes. Verse 6, unto all thy commandments. In verse 7, thy righteous judgments. Verse 8 again, statutes. He's using all these different words for, to express God's word, to express what he knows about God's word. God's word is God's statutes. God's word is God's commandments to us. God's word is also his righteous judgments of us. And he's using all these different terms uh, for God's word. And you'll notice those throughout the rest of the psalm. Whenever you see a word like that, immediately think of God's word as a whole. Not just law in terms of the Ten Commandments or just the Pentateuch or anything like that. Think of it as all of God's word. It's the whole thing. It's the all-encompassing word. Anything else jump out to you? That there is a law. That there is given by God who loves us. A right and a wrong, and we can strive for what's right. Correct. Yep. That's a good too. Because a lot of people think that God's law, uh, they are offended by it because they think it's God sort of keeping them from something. They think of God's law as if, you know, it's like, it's like a, a rebellious teen with a parent. You're keeping me from that thing that I think will make me happy or bring me joy. When actually God's law is the thing that's going to usher us into true joy, true happiness. He's giving us this law to keep us on his path, which is the path to life. The only path to life. Anything else? It does keep us from the pain. It does. (laughs) It keeps us from the pain and it keeps us on the road to joy. Which sometimes is filled with pain, as David testifies, as David was familiar Anything else? He has a really close relationship with God. Mm. Yes, he does. He does have a close relationship with God. I think that's another thing, that's a good thing to point out. Is he is um, so personal with God. That's actually something that's throughout all the Psalms, not just Psalm 119, but the personal relationship that David has with God. That's a conviction to me. He was so close to God. There's so, uh, there's so many psalms 
that I wish I could take you to, where David is so intimate with God that he relays something that sometimes I think we're afraid to relay. Just how there's Psalms where David confesses that he thinks that God has abandoned him, that God has forgotten him, or that God has closed his ears off to him. He's not afraid to let God know what he's feeling. You know, that's something that I've been encouraged by. You know, there's this sort of idea sometimes that the more spiritual you are, that the less emotion you show. David is the opposite of that. (laughs) I would think we would say that David is perhaps one of the most spiritual guys in our Bible, and he's also the most emotional. He's up and down. He Be still, O my soul. God, come into me and renew a right heart in me. He is all over the place. That's because he's human. Just because you're more spiritual doesn't mean you're less emotive. It's actually you are free to emote to the Lord, such as what David does. That's sort of a stoic thing that has come into Christianity that I don't like. But is there anything else that jumps out to you about these eight verses? Five and six, he's kind of admitting his conviction. Yep. He's He's not not following his way. Exactly. He wouldn't be ashamed if he did. Yep. And, And that's kind of what I want to get to. Because the thing that jumps out to me right away is that he, he's appearing to describe the Christian life, right? He, he says, blessed are the undefiled in the way. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. That should describe the Christian. Jesus says the same thing in the Gospels, that, that you will love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. He's repeating that from the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy. He's repeating the same command, that this is the, the first, the primary commandment. He's, so he's describing the Christian life here, and he's speaking of blessings, uh, the blessings that follow obedience, that follow walking with the Lord, and of those who are devoted to the Lord, and he's referencing the, just the happiness that follows that, right? He, he says that happy are they, basically. Happy are they who obey. Happy are they who keep his precepts diligently. But what jumps out to me is just the sheer impossibility of what he's writing. Because look what he says. Look at again, verses 1 through 4. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart they also do no iniquity they walk in his ways thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently according to the psalmist blessings happiness comes to those who do no iniquity happiness comes to those who are undefiled which means completely without blemish how many of you think that you meet that standard How many of you believe that you are those who are keeping the law with your whole heart? That you are keeping it diligently? That you're seeking God with your whole heart? I know me, I can confess to that too because I don't keep God's commands with my whole heart. I like to say, I think I want to say most of my heart. I don't even know if that's true. Because I know my own heart, and it's selfish. Just like we can reference that verse later on in Romans, which I love, which I think is so indicative of the Christian life, where Paul is confessing that the things I know I should do, I'm not doing. And the things that I know I should not be doing, those are the very things that I'm doing. 
I mean, Paul, the, perhaps the greatest apostle, the greatest evangelist who ever lived, was one who uh, admitted very uh, fundamentally in his most uh, glorious gospel, the gospel to the Romans, that he is one that doesn't seek God with his whole heart. There's times when he doesn't do that. David is the same way. And we are the same way too, because guess what? They are all humans just like us. And we don't see God with our own heart. We do iniquity. We do uh, uh, follow other commands with parts of our hearts and lives. We do stumble. We do stagger in this command to keep God's law diligently. And like Shane was saying, David knew that himself. Because look, at he's relaying all these things that he knows he should do. And then verse 5, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. God, I just wish that you would just direct me to keep these perfectly. That you would let me be completely obedient. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. How many times have you prayed that? After you've messed up. After you've gone back to the thing that you promised God that you would never go back to. Like when you're at youth camp and you throw the stick in the fire and you vow to God that you're not going to go back to that way of life. And then you go back to that way of life. You pray, God, save me from this body of death. God, direct my steps. If only, God, that's what David's praying. That phrase there, oh, that my ways, if only my ways were directed by you. God, if only, if only I was more consistent. If only I was more dedicated. If only I was more devoted, then I wouldn't have to pray this. (laughs) I wouldn't have to worry about this. God, if only I was more committed. See, that's the word that jumps out to me in this stanza. The word commitment. He knows that he should be committed to God's word. And yet he knows that he's not. He's confessing to God. I'm not committed to you. Because my heart is fickle. My heart is frail. It's pulled this way and that way. But God, please direct my steps. He's honest about his own heart. He knows That he's not committed. And that's what this stanza is. It's an encouragement for commitment to God's word. And again, this is not a this for that sort of scenario. That's that's kind of what our world, our society, our culture is founded on sort of a, if you do this, you will get this. That if you just do these certain steps, you will be guaranteed to have success or a happy life or a happy marriage or whatever. And that's not the Bible and that's not this. He's not saying, if you obey, blessings will happen. He's not saying that because Christian life is not formulaic in that way. It's not karmic in that way. It's not something to where we can just do certain things and then certain things will happen. He's He's not saying that. But he is saying that happiness follows those who commit to commit themselves to God's words. That's where we get verse 7, which I love. He says, I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. 
When he has learned where God's righteousness is found. That's when he's praising God. He's praising God not because he knows that he has committed himself. But he knows where God's righteousness is found. When he knows and he learns from God's words. God's testimonies of God's commitment to him. That's where his uprightness. That's where his blessedness is found. That's where our true blessedness is found. Is when we go to God's word and we are made to see. It is revealed to us where God has committed himself to us. That's what the word tells us. And in fact, John Gill, he's a, he was a commentator. He was a contemporary with Charles Spurgeon back in the day. And he says this about this stanza. He says, the gospel is the testimony of Christ. Of what he is, has done, and suffered for his people. And of the blessings by grace by him. This is that testimony. This is those righteous judgments. It's the righteous judgments that have found Jesus completely righteous. And then we are given that good news. That that righteous judgment is ours now by faith. That the way Jesus is judged righteously is how we are judged. And we are judged righteously because we are found in him. This is what David was being made to learn and believe and see. And he's looking forward to that promise. We look backward upon it. But in the same way we are found that we are, uh, our blessedness, our happiness is found there in that look To the righteous judgments which have found Jesus to be perfectly righteous for us. And this is where our happiness is. It doesn't belong in just the mere act of obedience. That's not what, again, that's not what David was saying. He wasn't saying just obey and then happiness follows. Again, we can just look at David's own life that that was not the case. He obeyed and then he was on the run. He obeyed God and then he was hunted and has a spear thrown at him in the king's own court. That doesn't sound very happy. Happiness belongs to those, again, who are keeping God's testimonies. Keeping, not in the sense that they're following perfectly. That word means guard. To watch over, to treasure. If we are treasuring God's testimonies, that is what fills our souls with blessedness. It's the treasuring of God's commandments, His righteous judgments, His promises, which tell us where all of our true happiness is found, in Christ. Charles Bridges, really amazing commentator and he has a he has an amazing commentary on this chapter he spends all uh, 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 several hundred pages commenting on this chapter and he says this let a sense of your helplessness for the work of the lord lead you to the throne of grace to pray and watch and wait for the strengthening and refreshing influences of the spirit of grace here let your faith realize at one and the same view your utter insufficiency And your complete all-sufficiency. That's what David was doing. This is what he was confessing here. He's confessing his utter weakness. Look at verse 8. He says, I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. (laughs) 
I promise, I'm vowing God, I'm going to keep them, I'm going to guard them, I'm going to obey them. But even if I don't, God, if I fail, please don't abandon me. Don't forsake me utterly. He knows his heart, he knows how weak he is. And such is the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of blessed weakness. It's a life of knowing that you aren't sufficient and that you are constantly pointed and directed to the one who is your all-sufficiency, Jesus Christ. This is what the word testifies to us. This is how we become blessed and undefiled in the way. Not because we have been found clean, but because we have been told the the righteous judgments that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has been clean on our behalf. And that we are washed in His blood. This is where our blessedness is. This is where we uh, are, are found unashamed you see that, that word in verse 6. Then I shall not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. That comes by knowing that our iniquity is gone. Because it's been taken by another. It's been taken by our substitute. Our advocate Christ alone. This is what David was committing himself to. He was committing himself To commit to God's word. He's not committing himself to his own strength. His own ability. His own devotedness. His own uh, uh, ideas about God. His own spirituality. He's committing himself to commit to the God. Who has promised to commit himself to him. He's committing himself to that God. He says I will again in verse 8. I will keep thy statutes. I will guard your decrees. I will observe and I will treasure all the things that you have decreed about yourself. That's what David's saying. That's what I'm going to treasure. That's what I'm going to keep in my heart. Keep at the forefront of my mind. Those things that you've spoken about yourself. This is why I think this psalm is so formative for the Christian. Because we have been given God's revelation. Think about David. He has not been given the Gospels. He has not been given the whole counsel of God. He only has part of the Bible that we have in front of us. And he is looking forward to that blessed hope of Jesus Christ, the true and better son of David. The true and better king that would come from his line. He's looking forward to that hope because he knows that that one would be judged and be judged righteously for him. We have been given the whole counsel of God. God's entire revelation is in this book in front of you. And how often do we forget it? How often do we forsake it? Well, let me tell you, there's grace for that. There's grace to be found that we can pray, Oh, that my ways were directed to follow in your statutes, to treasure your commandments, to keep your word. That's God's grace to us. We have been given this whole counsel, this 
whole, entire, complete revelation of God to know where our blessedness is found. It's found in the commitment of Christ alone. It's found in Christ's commitment to us. A commitment so sweeping, so total, so uh, uh, entire that he's committed himself to take our death for us. This is Christ's commitment. Committing yourself to know, to commit yourself to know and believe and trust in what you already know. See, I think about that a lot. Just the fact, again, that David had partial word. We have complete word. He was looking forward to something that he hoped and believed and trusted would happen. We are looking back on something that has actually happened. We are looking back on the cross, knowing that it is not something that we wait for. It's something that has already occurred in our history. And we know it because it's a fact, and we know it because the word tells us so. Oh, that we would, uh, would be uh, people of this book. People that are committed to God's commitment. Committed to remembering that commitment. Such is what we will do this morning in the morning worship service when we take of the bread and of the cup. As we take of the Lord's communion, we are reminding ourselves, we are preaching to ourselves God's blood covenant to us. We are preaching to ourselves that we won't be ashamed, that we would be directed to remember this righteous judgment of Christ who has been found completely and holy and righteous for us. This was David's prayer. Is this your prayer? Is your prayer to be found committed to God's word? To be committed to the word which testifies of God's commitment to us? Is that your prayer this morning? I pray that it is. I pray that it is mine. And not just today, but tomorrow when I forget it. <laughs> Perhaps even this afternoon when I forget it. Pray always and only that your steps would be directed to remember, to treasure, to keep this word this word which testifies of Christ. Which testifies of the free and abundant grace that we can find in him. Which brings us to our knees. And reminds us of the all-sufficient one who has been found righteous on our behalf. I pray that that would be our prayer. And such is the Christian life. A life of blessed weakness. We forget God's word, but he is ever faithful in his word. Let's pray.